It's the Sunday edition of An Irish Man Abroad, our big interview, and Ian Dowling is my guest today. The man behind the wildly successful Irish Pickers TV show and the creator of the brilliant rareirishstuff.com. Ian's skill isn't just in finding the most exquisite, forgotten pieces of old Irish life. His ability to, is to do deals, fair deals with the people that own those extraordinary things. It all began at a very young age when he made a 50p purchase at a church fair. When he flipped that item in the buy and sell the next day, he was hooked. The items he now sells are all about their story, their place in the story of Ireland. Whether it's the original doors from Bewley's on Grafton Street, the letters from the Tivoli Theatre billboard, the death mask of Kevin Barry, a signed copy of the Good Friday Agreement, or a whiskey vending machine. Do you remember those from an Irish pub back in the day? There is nothing this man can't find. His immigration story is both heartbreaking and uplifting at the same time and I was delighted to have the chance to sit down with him and present a little taste of our conversation for you here. We don't have a sponsor on Irishman Abroad. Instead, we use this space to shine a light on our chosen charity partner, Jigsaw.ie. Why not go over there and have a look at the incredible work they're doing for youth mental health in Ireland today. That's jigsaw.ie, the chosen charity partner of an Irishman abroad. That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately... I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Ian Dowling, it's brilliant to have you on Irishman Abroad. Not only because I'm just a massive fan of Irish pickers, like I just think the show has such a, a lovely soul to it. Like there's something about there's something about the pickers thing and the American pickers thing and even just the opportunism of finding rare stuff and then trying to sell it for more that can sometimes lead people to believe that you're trying to put one over on people and that this is kind of a bit of a Del Boy enterprise when in fact once you watch it and you understand the place that you come from that to you the best deal is the one that makes everybody happy yeah absolutely uh Jared. and look thanks so much for having me on i guess that was one of the challenges when you're out when, when i was doing irish pickers is kind of just making sure that everybody does end up happy i mean i have to the whole point of the show is to buy an item that i can turn a profit on i mean that's 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 the mission and you also then have to balance that out with kind of you know you want to I, I don't want anyone ever to feel like that they had um you know that i done one over on them or mm. anything like that like that's that was a huge thing for me as well so so it's, it's i guess it's striking the balance of kind of 
the vendor, the seller being happy, but also kind of the balance of, you know, being able to carve out a profit on the items because, you know, the money that I spent on, on Irish pickers was my own money yeah. and, uh, and, you know, and it had to make sense even for people buying it who are in, in, into the trade. And, you know, I mean, you had to be able to kind of buy something and be able to sell it on. So it's striking that balance. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that's, that's even when there's no camera, that's always the, yeah. the goal, you know what and I mean? I never want anyone to feel like cheated. Yeah, and, but people would smell it as well if you were just going in there with a wad of cash and splashing it around the place, right? Uh, that would make for a less enjoyable show. Like, I know, I, I know I've always been into these shows where people try and get, get value. Like, that's a whole genre of, of TV. But the reason why I bring up the spirit of it is that, you know, it's not high stakes. Do you mind me saying that? Like that, like it's not, I'm going to make a million dollars off this thing. That to me, the fact that it's sometimes it's 50 pounds and other times it's it's sometimes less than that. And, you know, the margins are can be huge, but. There's something about the small stakes of it and the way in which you are concerned with the story of the piece that makes it really endearing. Have you found that? And has that been the the feedback that it's a nice, it's actually a welcome break from the kind of Sunset Boulevard or Hollywood Hills kind of shows where they're trying to flip properties, etc. Yeah, I mean, one of the the kind of joys that I really got out of, of doing Irish pickers was really to, I mean, I guess when I was buying items and I do this, you know, this is, uh, I mean, I guess when I'm buying items outside of Irish pickers, it, it was the same kind of brief and that I tried to find items that tell a story that have a history. That's always kind of what I'm looking for. And um, I've an open mind on what that could be. It could be anything, but it's just something that has a backstory, has a bit of history and a bit of, um, you know, something interesting attached to it. And, and that's, that's always been the way I look at things when I'm buying. So when, you know, the great joy with Irish Pickers was that, you know, you could tell a story through the items. I mean, it, you know, you, you could find an item and it could be worth 50 quid or it could be 500 quid or even into the thousands. But it's about the story and it's a privilege to be able to tell particularly Irish history through the items and kind of it's like a window into the past. I mean, that's what these items kind of they give you an opportunity to tell maybe people about something that they might not have known about mm. or, you know, or have ever thought about, you know what I mean? And uh, so with Irish pickers, I think that that was, you know, th that was pretty much how I kind of, I mean, obviously when you went out and picks, you know, you don't always, depends on what's there and you kind of had to, you know, you, you may not always get the most interesting, fascinating items. Sometimes, you know, you might, you might be really kind of, um, you, you might hit the jackpot and. Uh, the story of each piece, right? And when you say you get to retell the story, that like in so many ways, that you, you've realised is how you'll sell it on. Is that nobody wants to just buy a random thing in this kind of business. People want to know the tale, the significance, that if it's just a yoke that's been found that's old, that well, that's less valuable. That like, I think that your own respect for the history, you must know that that's part of the selling point. And my next question was going to be, at what age did that begin? Because I feel like that's something that must go way, way back into your childhood. 
Yeah, I mean, um, my mother was always kind of into going to markets and, you know, flea markets and fates and all that kind of stuff. And my dad was always, uh, he went used to go down to an auction house down at Rabbines called Terminal Wilkinson. So I kind of used to, um, I was, I guess I was introduced to it in a kind of a, you know, they were, they, they were, it was just a kind of a casual kind of hobby for both of them. But I got introduced to it, I guess, in that way. But I was always fascinated with kind of old items. And then I, I was actually just thinking about, you know, like my, my granddad used to, he, when he retired, he bought up some he, cattle and he used mm. to go to these kind of cattle marts and yeah. auctions and stuff. And, and and at a really young age, like when we used to spend kind of you know time in the summer with him, and um, we used to go off of these to these cattle markets. Now I had no interest in, in cattle, but like I loved the excitement and the buzz of the of the auction. You know what I mean? And it wasn't glamorous. I mean, but it was just. I mean, it, it was just the kind of uh, in the canteen. You know, the lads would be kind of, you know, pots of tea and fries and then the whole excitement of kind of the ring when people were bidding on the cattle. I always remember that. And I was always kind of excited by that. Do you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. then I was, so I had that, I was kind of fascinated with that kind of scene in a way, even from a young age, I, I kind of enjoyed it, even though, you know, as I say, I had no interest in what was being sold. It was the, it was the, the atmosphere. And, yeah. 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 And the excitement of the hammer going down and all of that. And so when I started going to these kind of, uh, you know, fleas and things like that and, I used to just kind of run around the tables and kind of look around myself while my folks were doing their thing and just look at a table and gaze at the spread. And, you know, the exciting thing about these situations and fleas and car boots is that you kind of, you know, everything is one of a kind and everything does have a history. Everything does have a backstory and everything did really start becoming really fascinating to me. And when I started getting a few quid in my pocket, like just pocket money and stuff going along to these things, that's when I kind of um, the first the first buying experience buying buying and selling experience that I had was actually in a church. Um, the faith, baby faith monitor. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it was the baby monitor, and I remember <laughs> I that love this story was, because you yeah. know there's there, there's so much, before you tell it there's so much to this that I absolutely adore because it's you know it's the light bulb of it that you you see this thing you tell it now but am I right in saying that there's a moment in this for you where you go, holy shit, I can, yeah. I can make this work. I can do this. Yeah, big time. I mean, I was 10 and I had just coins in my pocket, but I remember there was this baby monitor in it, brand new, um, unused in a box. And it was, I mean, it looked valuable at that time, particularly it was kind of at the upper end of the, you know, in terms of te- technology, like it was pretty, pretty, pretty cool little thing. Um, <laughs> now, there was an old, there was a granny there, like man on the table, and I think, like I asked her how much it was, how much it was, and she said fifty p, and I think she just looked at me and thought I'm going to give, you know, she might have thought that maybe, I don't know what she thought actually, but she, I think she just thought she'd give me a bit of a break, and she, I don't know, she gave it, she said fifty p, and I was like sold, I bought it, didn't know what I was going to do with it, but I had always been looking at the buy and sell magazine, which was knocking around the house, and when I got home, I looked up, um, you know, like baby supplies or baby equipment and that category anyway, and. Uh, I remember looking at the going rate for the baby monitors and they're about 25 to 35 quid. So um, at that time, you could put a free ad in the buy and sell, one one ad a week, free. So I put in an ad for the baby monitor, unused, you know, original packaging and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, and then I got a call, a young couple came to the door and it was, I think it was 25 or 30 quid in Irish pounds. <laughs> they, they, no they problem buying it off a 10-year-old. 
No, I think it was easier, an easier sell because I actually sold quite a few things in the buy and sell after that. And once people got to the door and realised I was a kid, it kind of really leveraged my uh, ghost <laughs> yeah. position. Just you know Kevin I mean? McAllister they, opens the door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were, they were, you know, there was no, even if there was a bit of haggling, like, you know, they might say, would you take 20? Oh, I can't, it's 25. And they'd just say, right, I'm not going to start. You know, they just, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was, it was, it was child, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, on his doorstep or, you know, if he, they sometimes come into the hall and that like, and uh, yeah, it was, it was, it, it, but like you say, I mean, that baby monitor was the light bulb moment. That was the moment I thought, Christ, I mean, I can actually, that was a huge amount of money at the time mm-hmm. to me at that age. I was like, wow, I can actually, you know, buy a remote control car. I could buy this with that. I could buy that with that. And I was just instantly then I was like, this is, I'm going to do this again. And I've never stopped really in some ways. So in what was your life at that time? Like, I mean, you're obviously 10. What 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 year was it? So it probably was, I think it was fifth class, something like that, you know, fifth class, maybe, give uh, or take, around, primary school. I don't know what age you are. I'm assuming that's like early 90s, is it? Yeah, exactly. So it was yeah. around 1990. Yeah, right. so I'm 38 now. Right. Yeah. So uh, were you particularly good in school? Did you have a plan at that time? Or were were you like myself coming from like my family background wasn't very the establishment. We were very much on the periphery, I felt anyway. And in that way, I always felt that I was looking. I was always keen on careers that even if I didn't know how the hell I'd get there, those careers that were on the fringes never seemed that mad to me. Was it the same way for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I was in school, like, particularly in primary school at that time, I was a proper, you know, daydreamer. I mean, you know what I mean? I just kind of, I always just did enough to kind of get me by and not get me in trouble and all that kind of stuff. But, um, uh, and I sometimes fall short still, but like, I kind of, yeah, it just didn't really kind of, you know, it was just a kind of, a in school, I kind of, it was, yeah, I was always kind of, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I always felt that I was never really going to, do the kind of proper nine to five. I didn't really know what I was going to do, but I wasn't really. And why was that? You know, I wasn't. I don't know. I actually don't know. I mean, I just kind of. It doesn't excite me really. You know, I guess I might be even in school. When I got into secondary school, I was always kind of. It was always a thing of trying to come up with an idea, or or you know, or come up with something, or even with picking. It's like you're you know you're you're trying to find something that's going to help you mm. gain ground and like. I just way preferred the hustle, I guess. Do you know what yeah. I mean? I was always kind of, and, and just doing my own thing. I never really kind of wanted to just go through that same kind of drill of going to college for a couple of years and deciding what you want to do forever and, you know, and, and being stuck in that. And uh, I don't know, I, I kind of, I, I preferred to have a kind of a, an open mind, but I didn't really know where I was, what I wanted to do exactly at that point in school. For, for a um, lot of people at that age, though, the, the decisions that you're talking about and the choices that we make are, usually guided by the people that are around us. I mean, the the gang that you form that are pointed a similar direction. Did you have other like minded people who were like, yeah, Pickens, cool, like that's the way to go? Or were you at this all by yourself? Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody ever thought there was it wasn't cool anyway. I, I don't think like when I got kind of I, I don't know. I mean, a lot of people, there was nobody else doing that kind of thing. It was, it was only really now like with Irish pickers and stuff. And like everybody, when I, when I'm going out and about like before Irish pickers and even I guess during Irish pickers too, I mean, most people would have 20, 30 years on you in the trade, mm-hmm. you know, and you, you, 
there wasn't many people even, you know, kind of, there wasn't so much a new generation of people coming up into the trade. A lot of friends of mine were also kind of like-minded people and that they weren't really, you know, maybe following the kind of nine to five route. They were kind of more, you know, interested in kind of maybe doing their own thing or whatever that might be. And I kind of, that they're the kind of people I hung around with. But at the same time, they didn't really, what I did wasn't something that they really kind of um, had any great interest in or, or knowledge about or anything like that. It was kind of a bit of a difference. So you were just this guy who had this unusual interest, more or less. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, I don't know, I'm, I'm just, yeah, I, I guess I'm fascinated. It's, it's just a weird thing. I mean, I'm, I'm just fascinated by, you know, particularly when I got into my teenage years, I re- just started really becoming fascinated with the people that kind of came before us mm. and, you know, previous generations and, you know, just thinking about that. And then that's why when I come across interesting items, like it, it just opens up a whole train of thought in me, like, you know, oh, you know, wow, like this had this was around then and this was used for that and all stuff that is all long gone, but I'm weirdly just fascinated by that. Mm. And there's not many people I've met that are kind of like, none of my friends would be like that, you know, but I was always, I don't know. That's, I've always kind of taught that way, particularly when I got into, like I was interested in the buying and selling stuff from a young age and all that. I got a buzz out of it, but it wasn't the history and thinking about, the past, I guess, didn't really start kind of kicking in until I became a teenager, and then it just kind of grew and grew and grew. You, see, you know, because yeah. I don't like I don't I know that nobody's as into it as you, but I think that everyone can identify with what you're describing, even if it's just on their own micro level, like m- my own, like real. I don't know if you want to call it anorakism or fascination like that's what it has to be right it's it's more than a curiosity it's i want to know as much as i can and find the rarest thing uh relates to one particular kind of six-year period in american sports history that i'm absolutely drawn to uh, mm. And it's it's the marriage of the sports themselves with the culture that was around it. The even just the colours at the time are, are interesting mm. to me, and, and so yeah. I, I get what you're saying. I'm not going to go roaming the country, or maybe I will someday go around <laughs> America looking for these things because I, I I don't even want to wear them. That's the thing, right? That you don't even. Mm. It's not that you plan on using these things. It, like Tina will often say to me, my wife will go, why are you buying that? And I'll be like, because it's beautiful and it's a it's a piece of art to me. But, mm. you know, when you've got that, and I feel like, like the other thing that people can identify with is the passion. When you've got the passion, it doesn't feel like work. It feels it feels like I'm, I'm getting to live the dream here mm. when you really are pursuing your passion. And you clearly were at the start of your journey building as you say it built from there but this isn't your first rodeo like this isn't your first trip around the houses and i've teased this in previous episodes of the show that you had built this collection of stuff and enterprise of your own to a certain level can you describe what that level was and how how you got that how you feel you got to that point the first time around where you had a your own showroom 
what happened was, I mean, I, I was always kind of doing sales jobs like during my 20s and stuff like that. And the near, the closest to, well, the only kind of office job that I ever had was, uh, well, I was in college, right? I, I went to, I got a, I, I did a, a kind of a, a business course and I did the first year in that and I failed that, right? And I was over in San Diego. My dad rang me, got the results in the post. I failed seven out of eight. Like just purely just not, you know, not into it. Like even though I was interested in business, but just like assignments and all that stuff was just not my cup of tea. And I was kind of just, ne- but anyway, I ended up doing that a second time trying to repeat it. And I just, again, I just lost the interest and I thought, okay, I'm going to have to try and find a, an exit strategy here and find a job or something to kind of, you know, almost an excuse to get out of this. Um, yeah, so I, I ended up getting a job in, in the state agents where they were looking for someone to cold call. And I, you know, I'm, I'm good at that kind of thing because I'd done a lot of cold calling already at, at that point. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I just kind of have a bit of a knack at it. Now, I didn't know anything about cold calling for... In, property and stuff but I went along to the interview anyway and I just kind of you know was brimming with confidence and I said look what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I'll get the Eden Herald I'll get the Irish Independent and I'll get Daft um, the, new, the the property website Daft was kind of going at that time and um, you used to get kind of get landlords and stuff people even selling properties that would put Mm. ads in themselves and uh i just give them a call and kind of i i ended up becoming really really good at that and um so you'd go call them and try and get them to yeah. use the the agent rather than do it on their own exactly yeah yeah so i kind of um yeah that was 21 when i started that and i i didn't really like all the kind of office of you know the paperwork and all that kind of jazz but i loved and and they and the, the people that i worked for were great like because they knew that th- that was not my cup of tea either but they so they kind of did all that for me i was just this kind of guy on the phone and stuff and running out to meet people and and kind of get get keys of properties and bring it back to base and then try and get a tenant and i used to love the buzz of that so it was like it was almost like a different type of thing it was the same kind of there was a buzz there out of it which i really enjoyed which drove me and made me you know want to do it and then i was and i was good at it but it wasn't you know i guess so look when the when the property crash happens like we were starting to kind of things were starting to deteriorate i just said right i'm gonna jack this in now i'm gonna join some friends over in australia and went over there and whoa 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 so the property crash happens and i was working in in property myself at the time now and i wasn't like working for an agent or anything but i was definitely involved on the graphic design style side of things like you know a brochure for a new style of living you know those ones <laughs> a new way to live urban life uh, our company made those and when it hit like people forget exactly how like i wasn't there for the full crash but i was there for the first wobble <laughs> and exactly the same way i wasn't fully into it they knew it, so I was the first man out the door. Were you there for the full smack of it crumbling, or was it a case of this ship is looking dodgy? Uh, we better dump weight straight away. Yeah, I kind of just I was a bit tired of doing it as well. Like I'd been doing it five years at that point, and I kind of felt I was kind of wasting my twenties because I was going around in a suit and shoes and all that kind of stuff. And I just kind of started becoming a real chore, you know. I mean, I got a, a good buzz out of it for a couple of years, but once kind of things started slowing down a bit, I thought, right, yeah, I'm going to just get out of this now and, and go off to. I went off to Thailand with my ex girlfriend, and we just lived there for four months, and then. Then I went over to Australia to join some pals and, you know, I just had a blast, you know, and I, I kind of forgot, like, 
I was so kind of wrapped up in that job at the time. Like I was so used to just doing the Monday to Friday and the kind of, you know, it was, yeah, it was great to kind of get out there. And have, yeah. Oh yeah. And it was great to get out and just have to crack again and stuff like that. But, but while I was away, that's when everything really started kind of, I didn't know when I was leaving that what was obviously going to lie ahead. Like it was crazy. Like when I, I was getting, I was getting news from home and stuff and, I was in my own little world over in Australia and was having such a great time. Um, but when I was getting news back from home, it was not good and it was getting worse. And then it just got... As in worse for your family sp- specifically? Like there was financial difficulty, I guess, at the time, starting to hit my family as much as other families too. And my dad kind of um, became a little bit ill and stuff and everything was just, yeah, just shit hit the fan big time. And I kind of, um, so I, I, I came back to help out and try and, um, hmm. yeah, just deal Steady with everything. Steady the ship, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's how I found myself back, back in Dublin. And, and you know. And when you, when you get back, like there's obviously, like what you're describing there is what so many people did. And many people who are, who are listening to this now are still there and can remember being on the other side of the world and feeling like, holy shit, what's happening back home? But mm. So there had to be, a, on the one hand, great pride that you were coming back to try and help out. But on the other hand, there must have been a part of you that was heartbroken. Oh, I was absolutely heartbroken. Yeah, I was really heartbroken because I was living in a, you know, when I was over in Australia, I was doing sales jobs over there as well. I mean, I was selling kind of milk and dairy products door to door and I was selling bank terminal machines to businesses knocking over to you know not calling into cold calling into shops and stuff but we got it myself and my friends we got a house over in um in st kilda and it was due to be demolished and the landlord didn't really care too much about it he was just looking to get another couple of months rent out of it if he could so we moved in there and um anyway i i kind of after a while i just said to the landlord look there was a couple of rooms spare i said if i rent those rooms can i live here rent free and he said yeah look that sounds good to me so i I ended up jacking in the job and just living. And I was, it was, you know, put up the rooms on Gumtree and even had like tents out the garden that I put up on Gumtree. There was a lot of people living out the garden as well. Yeah, it was packed. I mean, the house was a little bit of paradise there for a couple of months. And I was just, I was in my element. Like it was, it was fantastic. But I had to leave that and like friends all behind and stuff and get on a plane and come back to this dire situation back home. And I remember like, when I was on the final leg of the flight going from London to Dublin, yeah, it was an Aer Lingus flight and the, you know, the deal with the cup of tea and the Irish mm-hmm. independent, you know, for 250 or whatever. I, uh, yeah, I just had a few coins. I got that, that anyway on the home, on the London to Dublin journey. And I remember reading the paper and just going, Christ, like it was just, I'd never even read a paper like it before in my life. I'm not even since it was just every single article was negative doomsday. Mm-hmm. Like it really, really, really and bad. Like, was that? That was 2009. So that was yeah. uh, early March 2009 is when I came back. And it was, yeah, that's, it was like eye of the storm at that time. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, so you were flat um, broke at that stage. And the aim is to help the family out. <laughs> and this is obviously the beginnings of, like I say, your first trip to the rodeo with the business. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it, it, you know, I, like I, I was flat broke, but I was also almost, I was in negative equity too. The family was in, uh, every, it was like a negative situation. So as in, if you got a regular job, you must have had the sense that this is just going to be giving money back to the bank. Yeah, exactly. So kind of, you know, they, I had the, the company that the estate or even though the market was in rag order, they, they asked if I wanted to come back. And I said, um, I just couldn't, you know, I just couldn't go back to that. Like after 
being away and, and with everything that was going on with property and all that stuff, I couldn't I couldn't work in that kind of situation. Mm-hmm. And I and and I and I didn't want to like because I yeah I didn't want to um at that point I mean look the bank was ringing my dad and my dad wasn't well and. You know, they were very aggressive, do you know what I mean? And, like, it caused a lot of uh, stress and, like, really upset my dad. I actually had to get somebody to represent uh, me to kind of talk to the banks and uh, tell them to stop doing that because it was something that I'll never really forget. Like, kind of at that time, it was really, really bad. And I thought to myself, yeah, look, there's no point in me getting a job, going back into that job. Um, I'll be miserable and I will... Uh, any kind of excess wages or whatever, the bank will probably want to take away because that's that was the worry at the time. Do you know what mm. I mean? That they were kind of when they were ringing my dad, they were saying, you know, you've got this, you've got that, and we're going to take that and this. And do you know what I mean? And his pension and everything. Yeah, it was unbelievable. I, I, yeah, it was crazy. And and I mean, you know, I so they hear and I can hear it in your voice. Like, uh, I mean, the behaviour at that time, like it doesn't get brought up enough. It just doesn't. Because it was such bully boy tactics. And so there is a little taste of my conversation with Ian Dowling. There's an awful lot more here. If you'd like to enjoy the full version of this conversation with Ian and all our previous episodes, plus the Tuesday, the Thursday, the Friday episodes, sign up for Premium Irishman Abroad today. It takes two minutes. There's no obligation. You cancel whatever you like. And for the price of a cup of tea and a bicky, you'll get access to hundreds of hours of content and the knowledge that you're supporting this show and its ongoing creation through these difficult times. You buy all sorts of stuff, don't you? You buy all kinds of bits and pieces during the week and you think nothing of it. But for the exact same price as a pint, you can keep this show going for years to come. So many of you have already done it and are enjoying the experience over at patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. Why not become one of those ultrasound people this week? Massive thanks to Ian Dowling. Massive thanks to Brian Connolly for his production, to Tina and Mikey and John Marr for his extra research. Come on over and hear the rest of this chat on patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad.